KQED. Hello, I'm Queenie Kim, and welcome to Smart Mouth, where we give you a digest of the week's news and try to sound smart about it. We've got Dan Brecky, editor of KQED's blog, News Fix, here. Hey, Dan. Hey, Queena. And we've got Joshua Johnson, KQED's morning newscaster. So what do you have? I have a look at a visit by Japan's Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe. He is in the Bay Area today as we are taping this podcast on Thursday, April 30th. He's making a visit that really has to do with trade between Japan and the U.S. President Obama and Prime Minister Abe are both very much in favor of this 12-nation trade deal called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And Japan is one of California's biggest trading partners, especially for things like computers and electronics. But here's the thing. We traded $12 billion of goods to Japan last year. That sounds like a lot. But of all the top 10 nations that California trades with, like Mexico and China and, and Canada and others, only trade with Japan is dropping. The Japanese economy is in trouble. And they really need to have better trade relations with the U.S. and Australia and other countries. So California could represent an inlet to the kind of innovation in Silicon Valley that has caused our economy as a state to just kind of take off. What kind of stuff do we have for them that they want to buy? They want to buy our brain trust. I mean, Shinzo Abe is speaking at Stanford. He's visiting the headquarters of Facebook and Tesla. He's meeting with Elon Musk. He's meeting with Elon Musk. He's visiting Japanese researchers or Japanese-American researchers at UC San Francisco who work with Gladstone Institutes, which is one of the super cutting-edge research institutes at UCSF. So he really wants to get Japan back to a place where they can do what Silicon Valley does. There's no better object case for this than Sony. Sony has been decimated for like the last six, six of the last seven years, they haven't made money. Now they're saying they're going to be profitable, but it's through slash and burn and not through innovation on the level of Apple and Google and Facebook and Tesla. So it's not so much that they, uh, we want to sell them stuff. It's more that they want to sell us stuff. It's both, actually. They want to be able to afford to buy what we're selling. I mean, Japan is in all kinds of financial trouble. They just raised their sales tax from 5% to 8 which freaked out everybody. But they also want to be able to innovate without having to come here. I mean, right now, if you want the world's best engineers, you come to Silicon Valley, and they'd like to be more a part of that. Although, you know, uh, that Tesla visit is interesting because, uh, or the visit with Elon Musk is interesting because Panasonic, which I believe is a Japanese company, yeah. is selling them their battery technology. They're building this big plant in Nevada, and Panasonic is really the, uh, the leading force in getting that thing built. Which used to kind of not be the way it was. It used to be Sony was just right. gold standard for right. Japanese technology. The other thing about the visit is that there are protesters who are upset over some of Japan's atrocities from World War II, particularly racism toward other Asian cultures and the use of basically female sex slaves, which were kind of euphemistically known as comfort women. For a lot of reasons, I don't think Prime Minister Abe is going to apologize. He's one of Japan's more conservative politicians. There's still kind of a hardline faction in Japan that really doesn't want to talk about this again. So that may not happen. Well, again? Lot... Did they ever talk about it? They've well, talked about it before, but they've well, never actually come well, out and said, I am, we are sorry. Well, there, a there's a long history in Japan of, while this history is accepted outside of Japan, there's been a reticence to talk about it and it, admit to it there. And of course, that's excited generations of controversy and criticism at this point. But, you know, there it actually goes further back than that. The Japanese talk about their own history, where they've had coup d'etat, where senior government officials or prime ministers were assassinated, and they just call them incidents, as if, you know, it was a, just uh, a changing of the guard or something like that. So 
there is something deeper going on there. But yes, um, there's well, I, also this nationalist factor. Well, being Korean, um, I obviously know a lot about this because Koreans were the butt of much of these atrocities. But what I found also interesting along these lines was Marco Rubio came out calling for Abe to apologize for the comfort women. And I found that that was an interesting thing for him to make an issue. You know, knowing Marco Rubio, because I'm from South Florida, and he uh, used to be one of the uh, members of Congress who represented South Florida specifically, his background as a Cuban-American dealing with an oppressive government probably speaks to why he said that. He takes a very hard line against Cuba. And so other cases of national oppression or government-sanctioned atrocity are right in the middle of his kind of cultural radar, just based on his upbringing. I was actually thinking, I was sort of thinking this through because I was like thinking like Cubans and Koreans actually have a, a lot in common because they're very anti-communist because of their history. So I was thinking maybe it's an appeal for him to get the Korean vote, but then I thought, not big enough. How much is the Korean vote? Uh, how much of it is outside California? I don't even know what it is in California. Oh, exactly. I mean, even though uh, L.A. has the largest community of Koreans outside of Seoul, I don't think it's enough to tip the scales. I don't think so. Um, Dan Brecky? Bart. And you're there. Bart and you're somewhere. Right. Uh, that's the hashtag. The California State Auditor came out this week with a report on Bart's finances, and the big item in the uh, in this report is confirmation that Bart's got huge bills to pay and it doesn't know exactly how it's going to pay them. So more specifically, what they're talking about is the fact that Bart is in the middle of buying at least 775 new rail cars. It's uh, refurbishing and expanding a, a big uh, maintenance plant in Hayward, and it needs to re- completely replace its central train control system so it can run more trains closer together and deal with some of that horrible overcrowding that we're seeing on rush hour trains. That's that's less than half of what they need to do. They also need to refurbish stations. They need to uh, uh, do earthquake retrofits, among other things, uh, replace elevators, um, update uh, escalators, build new station entrances. And so all told, they're looking at nearly $10 billion. Half of it is unfunded. So the question is, how will they pay? Or more to the point, who's going to pay? And is there a question as to whether they will be able to buy those trains and refurbish a track? I mean, is no, that the, like even on the board of like, we're not going to do this stuff? No, no. The the cars are in the way, but they're sort of in a race against time because uh, two-thirds so of the cars— So they've ordered everything, and now they got to figure well, out they, they, the bill. Yes, the orders are out there for the new cars, but uh, two-thirds of the cars they have now uh, started service in the Nixon administration. So they're in a race against time there. The, but— Here's a line I loved from Jim Allison, who's a uh, spokesperson for BART. He said, um, well, we're going to look to the public for help, as as usual, because our riders are part owners of the system. So I, I, it gave me a warm feeling to know that I'm part owner of a dirty, smelly, overcrowded train <laughs> that I can barely stand to look at. But you can do something about that. As a shareholder, you can do something about That's that. That's true. I can uh, tax myself to pay more for the privilege for using that property that I own. Well, and it's kind of like, a, it seems almost like a, a success tax or a prosperity tax that Bart's having to deal with because ridership is up and more people are using the system. It's kind of an outgrowth of yes. the Bay Area's prosperity. Well, so I'm sort of curious, like, why? what's the friction here? Because on the one hand, that seems reasonable, right? Like, we are using these uh, the BART, and a lot of people are using it. They need to make these updates. 
somebody has to pay for it. Why not? Like, I mean, this is like sort of the thing where people don't want to pay taxes and yet they want these services. Well, well listen, to be so, fair, BART is something of a victim of its own success. I mean, pe- the, the, during this tech boom we're seeing, people are crowding into these trains, and that's why they're overcrowded. And is it reasonable to raise taxes on it? Well, yes. The tension for some, there's a guy named Daniel Borenstein over at the Contra Costa Times, one of the leading critics of the uh, of the agency. He sort of gives voice to a major thread of dissatisfaction. There are a lot of people out there who feel like, hey, Bart, you gave in to the unions. You agreed to an extremely expensive contract on top of really not taking care of a lot of your maintenance business and dealing with these uh, train control problems and new cars before. So, you know, a lot of this you've brought on yourself. Where where the rubber is going to hit the road, whatever cliche you want to use in this in this uh, situation, the tracks. Uh, when the uh, the steel wheels are going to hit the tracks. There you go. That's no, it. all this is going to come to a head. There's another one. How, how long can I keep that? Keep going? it up, Bricky. Just keep going. Uh, all this is going to come to a head. Uh, or a screeching halt. When? Oh Lord, get me out of here. All this is going to come to a screeching halt. No, let's see. This is all going to result eventually in Bart coming to the public and saying, you know what? Um, here's what we're trying to do for you. So we need you to help help us pay for it. So they're going to go and, and either come to the voters with a sales tax initiative of some kind in the Bart counties or – a bond issue that people will pay for with their property taxes. So it, it, it sounds like you're a little upset about this, but I'm trying to drill down into, like, what's well, upsetting? Like, I get the union part, but are, are, is, is there a feeling that there's mismanagement here? Is well, there a feeling you know, that they're listen, paying too here's much a, for this l- Let's go back to the daily experience of writing BART. I mean, it may be an exaggeration to say that the, the whole system is, is dirty and overcrowded. However, it's a regular occurrence for people to experience long, unexplained delays. Uh, it's obvious that the system needs some major, major upgrades or reconfigurations that we're not even talking about. But wouldn't they say that's why we need this money? That's why we're going to make these uh, changes. And if you guys don't fund this, then that's what you get. I don't know. I'm not like I'm just sort of curious. It's as not to, a like, winning argument with people. And yeah. and, and listen, I just feel so, like sometimes the public sort of gets a little. I mean, I don't know, Bart, but I sort of feel like people want services. They want them to be great, and yet they don't want to pay for them. It's a little bit of this weird thing in America where we don't like taxes. And yet, like, if the BART isn't running on time, you're like, what's going on there? I guess I'm not sort of, like, understanding well, where the ire is well, coming from. Well, I, I would also uh, bear in mind that in the last few years, there have been a number of parcel tax and sales tax initiatives for a number of essential services in various parts of the Bay Area, like police and fire and schools, that have either failed outright or that have just not cleared the two-thirds margin that that particular item needed to pass, and so they died. I mean, I don't want to make too much of a comparison, but, you know, East Contra Costa County is going to have to close more fire stations because people wouldn't pay for a tax to fight fires in the middle of East Contra Costa County, which is a pretty dry, arid area. I think the, the saving grace for BART is that you have more people moving here who are like, what do you mean it doesn't run 24-7? The subways in New York are 24-7, and the subways in Chicago are 24-7. I don't understand why they're not 24-7. And I think there are enough people who don't understand. I have never said that, by the way. Whose voice like, is that? Wow, whose that voice? Was... I, I don't know. But I know plenty of people Meet who... Joshua Johnson. There you go. But there are people who are wondering why doesn't BART run like a mainline 
first-tier big city transit system. But wouldn't they say it's because we don't have the money, we haven't been funded, we have these rail cars? Are- Listen, you're right to a certain extent. Uh, BART, like a lot of transit agencies, are the they're the trains that people love to hate, right? And, and, and some of it is unreasoning. But there is a history where BART says, we tried to do this um, computer upgrade 20 years ago, and it just kind of didn't happen, and we had to settle with the vendor 15 years after the project was supposed to start. We tried to do the car replacement program in 2004, but we just kind of didn't get it together. Got and, it. And now Mismanagement. We're, so that's, well, I get it. Yeah, so like that's what you're saying. Lack of He's effective like, management. Right. I mean, uh, And listen, even if we give him this money, is it really going to change? I mean, that's sort of the skepticism? Is that, that, is that Of what, course yeah. it's the skepticism. And on the other hand, I have to say... It works most of the time. And, you know, on the other hand, maybe it's because I'm an Angelino and I'm from Los Angeles and I love BART. I mean, I get the frustrations with it, but I also sort of feel like how awesome is it to have a public transit system? And and honestly, we're all going to be riding Elon Musk's Hyperloop in 10 years anyway, so it really doesn't matter if we throw all this money Thanks for that. Let's move on. Uh, So there's a little bit of an update um, of a conversation we had before, which is about body cameras. San Francisco looks like it's poised to have its patrol officers wear them or they going to fund fund them. In Los Angeles this week, uh, the LAPD has decided that they are going to require patrol officers to wear body cams and turn them on when they make stops. The point of contention is that police officers are allowed to look at the footage before they make their reports, whereas the public will most likely not be able to see much of this footage because it's being considered evidence or, you know, it could be used in a criminal or civil case. So now, Joshua, I am seeing your point of view about why uh, we had talked about why I was wondering what's the big deal if the police see this video before they make their you know things it is evidence they want to see what happened on the other hand it does seem very unfair that the police can see that footage and the public can't when they're giving their statements it's got to be an even playing field I do understand on an objective basis I kind of understand the argument about the footage being evidence in a criminal prosecution. I mean, it's a similar problem with the Freddie Gray death in Baltimore, where, you know, as we're recording this, the Baltimore Police Department just released its data, its evidence to Baltimore County prosecutors. And Chief Anthony Batts, who, if that name is familiar, he used to be Oakland's Hello, police chief. Hello, Oakland. Hello, Oakland. Basically said, we, we can't tell you anything because it's an ongoing investigation. And that's true. If they release it, then you're releasing the information, namely this body camera footage, to a community from which you will have to potentially pull jurors. And that just wipes out everybody from being able to give an objective, yeah. brand-new opinion. So I, 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 I kind of get view. it. I, I totally see that point of view, but I also think that it's got to be a level playing field, right? Like, I mean, then the police shouldn't be able to see the footage before they make their report. So well, question that this raises for me is um, the ongoing clout that the police unions are exercising in shaping these policies. It's clear that uh, the L.A. policy was influenced by that. There's some suggestion that uh, legislation that's moving through Sacramento right now that, you know, could regulate how body cameras are used. Uh, There's lobbying going on by police groups there, and that'll probably come into play in San Francisco and just about anywhere else. And is that kind of union influence going to be stemmed in any way by the public outcry about police behavior. I mean, that's the tension. Police are are actually uh, 
a privileged class in terms of the law enforcement world because they're protected from scrutiny in some of their central activities. And, and that's what this is really about. Right. I mean, We're they, continuing uh, to give them that sanctity. And it's becoming more and more clear as to whether it's being it's in the public interest. Well, to has keep it doing served that? the public well to right. do it? Because we've seen too many cases where a, a sworn officer's account of of an event has been belied by uh, a citizen's video of that same event. I think that's partly what this piece of state legislation is supposed to get at. It would create like a statewide standard by which all departments who use body cameras would use them. Departments wouldn't you know be required to use body cameras, but if they did, it would basically set. I, I don't know whether it is a standard or a floor, like a minimum standard for mm. cities to to obey, but that could help to answer some questions in terms of who gets to see it and when do you have to turn them on and where does the data go and is it, you know, does it store it in the cloud or do you leave it on hard drives and who has access to them? It should kind of iron that out. But it is interesting. I hear what you're saying is that like, uh, like while public opinion has become much more critical of the police and we're really sort of uh, in a Some serious way, anyway. yeah, uh, been scrutinizing, like, is it right to give them so much power, so much sanctity? They still seem to be wielding it. Well, and I think that the, you know, the proliferation of cameras that get smaller and clearer and better makes the police having body cameras all the more important because they want to have their own look. It, you could have a bunch of bros in East Oakland who decide, man, we buying drones. We finna buy some aerial drones and some GoPro cameras, and we going to watch our own neighborhood. And so when they hear, whoop, whoop, pull up, then you suddenly hear flying over the skies of International and 66th, and everyone in the community is a walking, talking photojournalist. It makes perfect sense for police unions, just logically, to be concerned about what that means and to have some kind to force some kind of public conversation about what video is admissible as evidence, the video that comes from them, compared to the video that the rest of the public makes. Now, I think the caveat to Dan's point is that they are considered a very privileged class and the law views them that way. The law gives tremendous deference to law enforcement officers in prosecutions. So they have to be careful that they're not playing this game too closely because otherwise people are going to be like, well, wait a minute, my iPhone takes just as good a picture as that little camera on your chest. What's wrong with my video? Why is your video suddenly like the holy record mm -hmm. of what happened that day? Okay, so it's time for our lightning round. This is where we talk about a couple of stories that uh, have been on our radar that maybe have not made it out into the world. And I'll start uh, one thing I'm looking at are travel security companies. There's one down here on the peninsula called Ripcord that um, go in and rescue travelers in trouble. And they're in the news this week because they've, uh, they're in the midst of looking for 11 people in Nepal who are missing or injured. And they rescued 16 people from the Mount Everest area wow, earlier this know. week. Yeah, I didn't even know these things existed. Yeah. Um, so how much does that cost? It's available for any traveler, uh, even if you're just going to Paris for a week. Uh, that would cost you about 150 bucks. You can insure your entire trip. And the guy didn't really want to go into what the cost would be of an armed extraction from Colombian guerrillas. $1,700 for a flight to Paris and 150 bucks to be rescued 
from an avalanche? Uh, no, 150 bucks would probably get you, uh, you know, your suitcase returned uh. or uh, directions to a hospital so in case go you've got impetigo. Because there's a lot of reasons you might have to be rescued from Paris. I can't really think of one, but... <laughs> Bad brie. I'm going to take the next one because it comes a little on the heels of that police uh, union thing. And um, so there was a bill wending its way through Sacramento to relook at teacher tenure, take another look. Also, uh, whether we should have it, whether we shouldn't, whether people should get it for two years or, you know, after two years, whether they should get it for three. Another thing was how should we be laying off teachers? Should it just be by seniority or should we be looking also at how are they as teachers? That bill was, I guess, not quite killed, but there's a certain purgatory. I guess it's going through more research or study and people are looking more into it. And I found this a little disappointing. I think there is a need. There are a lot of great teachers out there, but having been a teacher, I think there needs to be some reform in terms of how this is done. And I often find the teachers unions a little disappointing in that rather than uh, being out front and being sort of the keepers of a certain professional standard, quite often they are the they're, they're the defenders of the lowest common denominator and people who aren't pulling their weight or who are, quite frankly, shouldn't even be in the classroom. And I think we do need to rethink this. Well, isn't the, the pushback, though, that uh, in terms of evaluating teacher performance that we're prisoner of test scores? We're um, prisoners of test scores? Yeah, but I think hasn't the teachers union often like any kind of evaluation is just sort of a little off the table, right? I mean, it's always been like you can't really evaluate teaching. I mean, I think they should go in there. I've always felt like the teachers union I, should be like. I, I, I beg to disagree as the uh, very attentive spouse of a 17-year veteran of the Oakland Unified School District. There, there, there are, are a there, lot of great teachers there are, out there. No, but they are, there but they aren't. are evaluated as well, right? And they are subject to to uh, discipline and retraining if they're not doing a but good very, job. But uh, having taught in LA, like I have to say that there are a lot of bad teachers out there that are being protected by. I've personally met that are protected by the union, and um, and everybody knows they are, but they're just shuffled around. So it's a bad apples. The, the 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 barrel is mostly like great apples, but I think it does it does do the profession a disservice by not, you know, holding the line against bad actors and defending good actors and just sort of treating everybody as if they're the same. Okay, we'll revisit this. My lightning round story, wait for it, holograms. What? Freaking holograms. Microsoft unveiled more features of its new holographic computer system HoloLens at their developers conference this weekend. It was amazing. I watched the webcast. It really was some very cool science fiction stuff. I mean, so like if you don't have a friend, you can have a hologram. You friend? can have a hollow friend, but even more than that, it's things like teaching a surgeon how to do a surgery without using cadavers, designing buildings with architects around the world without having to rely on a flat model, having robots that you can manipulate around a room and talk to and animate. I mean, it was visually, it was awesome. As far as Windows 10, which is what Microsoft is really trying to push, they still haven't released a date for when it's going to come out. But one of the things they did say is they wanted to make it easier for developers to poach iPhone and Android apps. There are nearly 3 million of them. And one of the things that Windows 10 will allow developers to do is take the apps they've already written, run it through a little program, scrub the code, and it's right there ready for Windows 
PC, mobile, or desktop. But then that begs the question, who uses Windows Mobile? Everyone uses Windows 10. And, and by changing, the way... I though, I have to say. I don't... I mean, I, like, I use Google for everything. Google Docs, Google... Because I don't want to pay for Microsoft. That's or, one of the threats. I think that's yeah. a bigger threat to, to Windows than Apple necessarily. But come on, holograms. We're going to take this one offline. That's it for Smart Mouth. I'm Queenie Kim, and today we've heard from Dan Brecky, editor of KQED's blog, News Fix, Joshua Johnson, KQED's newscaster. And hologram enthusiast. Victoria Malione. I know I'm butchering that name, but she's our producer today. And Jim Bennett, our engineer.